0: Welcome to the UC Berkeley Data Science Education podcast. We're happy you're listening in today. In this space, you'll hear from a variety of distinguished data science educators and professionals. The individuals we'll speak with are diverse in experience and perspective, but share the common goal of shaping the future of data science education. Our idea is to have some informal conversations with the goal of creating community and let people hear from practitioners in this growing new field.
1: And my name is Lauren Chu, also from Data Science Undergraduate Studies. I'm working as an intern with the division's external pedagogy team, and I'll be helping to guide the conversation today, too.
0: Great. Uh, Great to have you here today, Juan. Could you give us a brief introduction about yourself and what you're currently working on?
2: Uh, Hello, Eric. Thank you so much for the invitation to have a conversation. I'm a professor of mathematics at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I'm also the chair of the Department of Mathematics, and currently I'm working at the intersection of data science, mathematics, and its applications. And I hope that uh, we will have the chance to talk about all those matters uh, as we evolve in the conversation today.
0: Nice. I mean, just to set it up, uh, you know, a lot of the people listening are people that are interested building out data science education at their universities. So I was wondering if you could just start out by telling us what's happening with data science education at UT San Antonio. Something very positive happened relatively recently, and that was the
2: creation of a school of data science. The school of data science is a federation of resources, uh, departments, institutes, researchers, educators throughout the university. It's not a college in the sense that uh, no faculty resides only in the School of Data Science. It has a beautiful location downtown that probably you will be able to see when you come to the annual meeting of the uh, of ATSA, the awesome. uh, Academic Data Science Alliance. We will have it in that new building that was open to the public less than a year ago. So this has been uh, in the making for several years. Finally, we have gotten to the point in which it has materialized. It has resulted in multiple initiatives to improve education of undergraduate and graduate students regarding data science. Mm, For example, there have been modules that could be deployed to multiple courses uh, in multiple colleges capturing different aspects of data science from the most conceptual, uh, non-quantitative, societal philosophy, history of data, uh, all the way to the most advanced courses that we have in uh, machine learning, quantum information theory, and so on. So it's an ecosystem, comprehensive ecosystem. We see the need to grow in this direction because this is what our society needs in this moment. And this direction opens doors, meaningful doors of opportunities for our students.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Um, so, uh, where we met was uh, at the ISERM meeting in Rhode Island. That was about data science and social justice. And, um, you know, I know that you're passionate about sort of bringing so- social justice issues into the classroom and sort of integrating it with your research that's like mathematics and biology. Um, can you just sort of comment on how you combine those passions?
2: Uh, yes, it's, uh, it wasn't a, a straight shot for me. I started my career as, as an engineer, then I did some other things, and then I ended up doing mathematics with an emphasis in biology. From that point of view, I started in, in a uh, theoretical uh, framework of mathematics and biology. I was a postdoctoral fellow for one year at the Institute of Theoretical and Mathematical Ecology at the University of Miami. That will give you, the title will give you a sense of uh, what was happening there. Many partial differential equations, perhaps little regard for confrontation with data to calibrate those models. But then I moved into the world of malaria. And malaria happens to be an incredibly complex disease. The pathogen that causes malaria is not a virus, it's not a bacterium. It's a protozoan, a a unicellular animal with uh, many chromosomes, mm, exquisitely complex uh, life cycle. And to understand what it does, you have to look at multiple scales. You have to look at the epidemiological scale. And at this point, we cannot do just a theoretical work. We have to confront reality with the quantitative models. Then there is the problem of dispersal of the mosquitoes, vector dispersal, we can quantify it um, with much care for uh, associating what is in the field, that is the, the vegetation cover, because different plant species might influence what type of species you have, of mosquitoes you have on the ground and then try to quantify the potential dispersal of these vectors. So you have the host dynamics, now the vector dynamics, now they, how they those two interact. Where are the human populations? Where are the potential mosquito populations? What is the behavior of those mosquitoes? Because mosquitoes are not a uniform Lego piece. They have nearly personalities. Different species have different... Uh, preferred times to bite, preferred parts of the body to bite. Uh, Once we incorporate that, the social practices or the places where mosquitoes are taking, uh, are are transmitting malaria with other things that are happening, for example, co-infections. So we have to go into the immune system. And once we consider immunity, we have to also uh, consider the physiological response to the presence of this parasite. So we keep going down the scales. And if you're considering immunity, then you have to look into individual cells and what is happening with the different populations of immune cells. So you have to go into something called systems biology, which is uh, mathematical modeling of the gene regulatory networks, differential equations and other models to determine how one gene expressed is going to influence other genes and how that does that affect the response of the host. And eventually get to a point in which you identify a molecule of interest. And if you have a molecule of interest, let's say a protein, the question is, do I have a drug that I can apply to the host to obtain an outcome? Whatever that outcome might be. Could be to affect the parasite or to improve the resilience of the host. And in this trajectory, I mean, th- that this is the end point of computational drug design. But through every scale we are looking at data, very complex data of very different nature. So multi-model um, data analysis that to make it happen, requires an infrastructure that in itself is an engineering problem. If you have to transmit, for example, uh, telemetry information with surgical implants in monkeys, we run many experiments like that. Uh, just the bandwidth of the receptors in a room full of monkeys with cages and then the, receptor, the receivers and the transmitters, uh, it it creates a, a very difficult challenge. And how do we make this information available in real time knowing that we're generating terabytes and terabytes of data? That entire ecosystem, I think that exemplifies the biggest challenges that we have in data science that is how do we advance our understanding of a problem with uh, techniques related to data analysis? How do we support an ecosystem that allows that analysis? So we start talking about data analytics being okay. analytics, a broader set, set data analysis. So we, when we talk about data analytics, we start talking about software engineering and uh, source versioning. And then we can keep expanding to now incorporate how social practices influence what we observe. The tradition in science has been that we conduct a controlled experiment and what we observe from that experiment becomes a fact, a reportable fact, and that helps us to build broader narratives. When we introduce these quantitative models, multi-scale for drug interventions, mass drug interventions, you name it, into a social system, very interesting things start to happen. And is that the social dynamics drive what we actually observe to the point that might change what we think is the reality, the scientific fact. So how is it possible? Uh, look, for example, in the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic, let's leave the world of malaria. Uh, I think that people can relate to what happened here in our in, in, at our doorstep. Very early during the pandemic, and I was doing some modeling in COVID-19, myself and others started noticing that Republican counties or counties with a Republican inclination tend to have a higher mortality rate as compared to counties with a Democratic inclination. Now, when we talk about politics, I don't want this to be taken as a partisan statement. It's just an observation. And the observation was that the information being distributed in different channels of communication that were consumed differently by different parts of the population uh, were sending different messages. And the message people were receiving in these communities led to a higher rate of infection in certain communities. So you see a very hard, biological phenomenon, the virus has certain uh, mortality rate. And then you confront it with the social phenomena, and then suddenly the social interactions are changing the mortality rate of a pathogen. So it's not as fixed as we suspected. Mm -hmm. Uh, That in conjunction with what was happening in the world of malaria made me start to look into social phenomena, how to quantify it. And it doesn't take too long. To look into social phenomena quantitatively to realize that we have profound inequities that are structural in societies around the world is not only the united states and these inequities are promoted by those who own resources those who want to keep certain privileges keep certain wealth at the expense of others and this introduces abject situations uh, this is, you commented to the, the workshop at ISERM that we had a couple of weeks ago. I was showing that uh, this really dictates the destiny of people. And uh, that's why I'm so interested right now in the matter of social justice, as it relates to the data that we collect, how it informs scientific facts or phenomena that we thought to be fixed because they are biological, and in understanding, we might be able to introduce interventions or actions that could help make the world in which we live a better place. It's a long-winded answer, but you asked a very complex question.
0: Thank you. That was awesome. Uh, we, went, we went a lot of places in that answer. Um, when I look at your CV or sort of even just hear that story of like the arc of how you got there, I see like you're moving towards data science or you becoming more of like a data science person over time, right? Moving from that like math for modeling versus like, you know, data science. Uh, and I just wondered if you could just sort of comment that's like the rise of this new field as something that we teach is also mirrored in like the, the sort of evolution of your research pathway.
2: Well, that's also a very interesting question because I think that there was no transformation. I think that people end up where they belong. And instead of moving toward data science, I can tell you that when I was in fifth grade, I was a 10-year-old boy. The principal of the school I was going to, a Catholic school that gave me a grant so I could go for free, um, read in the newspapers in the year 83, 1983, that these new objects called personal computers were going to be important. So this uh, Catholic priest called Saturnino Flores in year 83 organized a raffle. They uh, put some food on the table and they, they sold tickets and they bought 25 NEC computers, 64 kilobytes of RAM memory. And it was mandatory that every student had to take computing classes. So I wrote my first program when I was 10 in Colombia as did every single student in that classroom. And I was hooked. I had found something that I really liked. So it's not like I ended in data science and computing by having that early exposure. I was able to um, gain a perspective about the different things that I was being exposed to. So after that, I went to an engineering school And although I did civil engineering, my uh, undergraduate thesis, back then we had to prepare an undergraduate thesis. It was a six year uh, degree, more equivalent to a bachelor's plus master's. The thesis was a computer program to do a structural analysis. From there, the doors that opened were doors that had to do with data and computing. So one of my first jobs was with the oil industry integrating sensors, designing and building my own electronics microcontrollers to transform and process the signal from sensors into ones and zeros to show on a screen, to then transfer uh, via microwaves to the owners of the oil rig 5,000 miles away. Then the other things happened. And then I landed in the US as an immigrant in the year 2001. I landed thanks to those skills, the ability to write code and the ability to do data, not yet a mathematician. I came to work with a work visa, absolutely inarticulate in English, but fluent in programming languages. My English was so bad in 2001 that I couldn't even place an order in McDonald's during my first night in the US. I went to bed hungry that will give you an idea how bad it was but then after I started here I realized if you want to make progress in this society education is the key and that I ended up as a graduate student in mathematics and from there it went so data and computing have been there uh, as a guiding light from the beginning for me and it has been showing up in increasing intensity because now it has become a part, fundamental part of society.
1: Your story, especially as a student, is super inspiring to hear. I mean, the things that you've gone through and having exposure to computer science at 10 years old is absolutely crazy. Like I was born like in the 2000s and I didn't even have that when I was 10 years old. Um, So that's really inspiring. Um, Looking at your CV, we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about social justice, mathematical biology, data science. Um, But one thing I want to touch on is having written two novels, you're very versed within the literary world. Um, And I was wondering if you could speak to how your experiences with literature has helped you within the field of data science.
2: Uh, It's, uh, thank you for noticing that. Uh, It's a two-way street. Uh, As a kid, I was a bookworm. I was the kid who would go to class and instead of opening the book of geography, I would open the book of geography, but inside there was an old that I would be reading during class and during the crisis periods. So it definitely shaped uh, the way I think and my ability to communicate. The ability to communicate is one of the most important skills and the best way that we know to develop that is through exposure to narratives by reading fiction or non-fiction reading is very important. It it really helps develop that. I believe, I'm not claiming that I'm an excellent communicator. I'm just claiming that it helped me communicate at every single step what was happening because I was exposed to literature and as an undergraduate student, I completed all the credit hours for a literature degree, which I never pursued. I wrote the first novel in, when I was a 23-year-old, and that novel ended up being uh, receiving multiple awards. And that novel, there are about six doctoral dissertations about that. Much more ink has been spilled about that novel, but it was an electronic novel, that is, a novel intended to be written to be read. I'm sorry, in uh, in electronic media. This is in the early days of the internet. We're talking about mid 90s when that was an idea that people were thinking, well, oh, this could happen. So data and computing became the instrument to develop a system, an artificial intelligence system to uh, be able to write the novel. That system is called uh, Literatronica. It's an AI engine, uh, very rudimentary because we're talking about 90s, 90s technology. And uh, that's how it it, it it went the two ways. By doing this uh, attempt to build AI, I became competent in AI. I created a business in Colombia, the Centro Avanzado de Investigación en Inteligencia Artificial, CAVIAR, that is the Advanced Research Center in Artificial Intelligence. It's a pompous name, but it gave me what I needed to develop that product. And another company was created to commercialize the product. Then when I immigrated to the US, uh, I immigrated with a work visa, so I couldn't own any business. The day I I earned my green card, I obtained my green card as an alien of extraordinary ability in the field of electronic literature. And that day that I got my green card, I went to create two businesses in the Florida Department of State, uh, the State Department. Those two businesses because I had a contract ready with colleagues from Spain to. develop a project for the city of barcelona so that same day they told me the contract it's on its way uh you got the money i picked up the phone called my manager told him i quit you goodbye and with a business the money in my pocket the money to develop a literary system for the city of barcelona i was able to quit my job become a full-time graduate student so they, those two things are intertwined, and they have remained intertwined. I cannot say that one has any prevalence, prevalence over the other. Uh, they keep informing the trajectory and the things that I do and, and my what my aspirations are.
1: The way that you've been able to kind of pivot your entire life and be able to pursue all this all these passions is incredibly inspiring. Um, And as we wrap up kind of the end of this interview, I wanted to pivot a little more to data science education as a whole. And I was wondering if you could touch on how should we as data scientists and educators be creating or involving a community around data science education?
2: I think this is the most important question for us in colleges and universities right now. It's essential that has to be interdisciplinary. We have to bring people under the tent. From all paths of inquiry, digital humanities, music, uh, engineering, science, uh, liberal arts, everybody's using some sort of data uh, in their inquiries. So we first of all have to be very inclusive. Second, we have to recognize that this diversity imposes constraints on what can we teach and the pace at which we can teach it. It makes little sense to attempt to teach the same thing at the same pace to everybody to reach an student learning outcome. We have to recognize that every individual comes with different strengths and and deficiencies in their knowledge. So having an adaptive learning system that adjusts to what those peaks and valleys are might help accelerate uh, the discovery and the acquisition of skills so that We can truly provide meaningful pathways to competence through the minimal path. We want to make this as easy as possible for everybody, but bring all participants in the educational experience to a level of competency that we require in society to function properly. So I think that the key to summarize, interdisciplinary education, adaptive education, and uh, inclusivity, which, of course, implies diversity.
1: That was a very succinct answer. I appreciate that. Um, And as our last question for this interview, we ask everyone, do you have any parting thoughts or words of wisdom for any data science educators around the world?
2: Well, I don't know if those are words of wisdom, but these are simply my aspirations uh, as a data scientist and somebody who is very uh, interested in the field. Uh, the more we educate our, our our communities in be able to being able to consume data and produce knowledge out of data, the better we will be as a society, because our communities, members of our community, will be able to ascertain whether something that is being informed is true or not, whether the consequences of taking an action are actually uh, foreseeable or not, whether uh, intended plans of action at the political level, community level, administratively, in whatever organization, people should be able to tell whether these are rooted in reality. And for that, we need to bring data to everybody. Data is everywhere, should be for everyone. So any step that we take in that direction, that's what we should do. And for that, we need a very strong community. And th- those are my aspirations.
0: Awesome, I love that, thank you. Thank you for thank you for your comments, it's really great. Um, very inspirational uh, hearing your story. And um, uh look forward to seeing you in San Antonio. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you're interested in learning more about data science education resources, please subscribe to our Substack to get notified when we release any future podcasts, and join our community Slack channel through the link provided in this episode's description. Thank you.